to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. It wasn't long ago that very few companies were comfortable with the idea of working in open source. But the world has changed, and as Chris Wright says, open source is the new normal. Chris is the Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Red Hat. And on this episode of The Future of Tech, he explains how Red Hat has helped open source go mainstream. He advises everyone in the tech community to become part of the open source community, because it's there that you will uncover solutions to problems that you weren't expecting, or couldn't find without the power of a collective of curious minds working towards a singular goal. Plus, he explains why he thinks CIOs need to ask themselves a couple of very important questions surrounding operational efficiency and developer velocity. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So Chris, happy to uh, host you at the Future of Tech. You are the uh, city of Reddit, and we're going to speak about many items uh, related to obviously Reddit and OpenShift and uh, containers and Kubernetes and, and, you know, as time goes, probably some other uh, interesting topics. I, I'd like to start maybe with a kind of a personal question. You know, how, how did it all start? How did it all start? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's never a straight line path, is it? For me, it started, you know, really as a kid, I, I was always interested in computers and uh, I did some programming starting with my Commodore VIC-20. I always wished I had the Commodore 64, but it's outside of my price range. And just writing basic programs, I actually went to the local university where I could take some classes, you know, not university classes, but just classes aimed at, at kids that are interested in learning basic programming. Uh, and that, that got me interested. A lot of that was about writing games uh, or even just getting your name to scroll across the screen and flash different colors. I mean, it was pretty easy to, to entertain yourself. And playing uh, basic space invaders, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Pretty easy to get enthusiastic about something that you wrote since it's all new, right? Yeah. And over time, my interest really went towards physics. So I studied physics in school and doing a physics degree, I just spent a lot of time in labs generating tons of data and spent a lot of time at a Unix workstation crunching all that data. And there was something about the Unix command line that I always liked. My my dad is also a computer guy and and so at home using DOS, the same kind of command line. I just, I like the combination of arcane information that you needed to know in order to get the job done, but it wasn't completely unintuitive. I mean, maybe you didn't know the name of the command beforehand, you couldn't intuit what it would be called, but once you understood it, it was easy to kind of get your head around the logic of what was going on. And I always really liked that. So when I left school, I got into the, the tech industry and it was really just somewhat timing, you know, somewhat coincidence that 
I spent a lot of time in distributed systems and telecommunications products, and all of our tools were open source, not for any reason other than they were the best tools, they were easy to get access to. We ported across Solaris and Dynex and Dynex PTX and SCO and AIX and all these different Unix platforms. Having a GCC tool chain was really useful. Going to Sun Sites and getting a Bash shell, which was better than the corn shell that came with a standard Unix distribution. Those kinds of things sort of started me down a path towards Linux. And ultimately, I landed in a job where I spent full time working on Linux. And what an awesome experience that was. I mean, it really just changed my perception of what's possible in terms of how you build software, what collaboration looks like. And that fast forward to today is, is what brought me here. So kind of a circuitous path, computers as a kid, physics as a college student, and the tech industry leading me back to, into open source and, and to Linux today. No, it's funny because um, I always have a warm uh, part to those who like uh, command lines as opposed to, you know, uh, so the, the, <laughs> the one that allows you really to touch the heart of the system as opposed, you know, as opposed to the, uh, the traditional uh, uh, way of doing things. And, and, you know, you mentioned also uh, Sun Microsystems, not, not many of our, you know, podcast uh, listeners probably knows that there was a, a company that was named Sun. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, many of them is still, yeah. uh, you know. But if you had the uh, the uh, fun of playing with AIX as opposed to Linux, probably you know this is also something that uh, we shared in uh, in our past. I, I was working for IBM for several years, and okay, yeah, yeah, I also worked with uh, with AIX as kind of uh, you know Unix machine. Yeah, and you know many years after IBM uh, went uh, full uh, journey into Linux, and and uh, and eventually also you know they bought Red Hat. At what stage uh, in Reddit you've joined the company? It was a small company, a big company back then? Yeah, it was relatively small. So the, the sort of the brief history of, of Red Hat, Red Hat was founded in the 90s. And it was founded around building a Linux distribution called Red Hat Linux. Mm -hmm. The audience for that Linux distribution was really tech enthusiasts. So more consumer focused than, than enterprise focused. Mm -hmm. And the way you'd get the, the distribution was potentially download it um, or get it as a CD in a magazine. It was, and it was more about sort of shrink wrap software and t-shirts and hats and, you know, kind of creating a, a consumer focus around a technology that tech enthusiasts could get excited about. That was in the 90s, the company IPO'd in 99 and the early 2000s the business model fundamentally shifted. And that fundamental shift was the creation of the next generation of that same Linux operating system called Red Hat, the time advanced server, but now Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And that had a focus on the enterprise. So very different customer base, different kind of intention behind the business. That's our business focus today. So that's, that's the modern version of Red Hat. I joined about 2005, so about 15 years ago. And when I joined, the company was around a thousand people. So I didn't literally know everybody, uh, but I knew many people and I knew of each organization and I knew somebody in each organization, if not everybody in certain organizations. Today, we're 15,000 people. I promise you there's corners of the company I don't even know exist just because we're at that scale. 
I certainly don't know everybody. I don't feel like I have that one degree of separation to everybody. We've grown quite substantially. Yeah. And in addition to just the number of people, our focus has expanded. So we started as a company focused on Linux and an operating system. Today, we have a portfolio that's much broader than, than just Linux. And it's really about bringing open source technology to the enterprise to help the enterprise change, improve, transform their business. So just a much broader view of, of what we're up to. And it's been really awesome to be a part of that whole journey. You know, when I came, it was Linux only. We added, uh, I, I started to help bring virtualization as part of the product portfolio. Around the time that I started, we did an acquisition of JBoss, which brought a whole set of Java-based middleware capabilities to our portfolio. And it's just been growing ever since then. So let's, let's go back to the uh, working model. So uh, you've mentioned one change, which was, you know, first of all, it was all these techies guy, techie guys, which were very fond of the idea of having the ability to change the, the kernel, probably. <laughs> And then you, you, uh, you moved into the paying guys, which are the enterprises, you know, the serious guys that, uh, that are putting uh, the money and, and allow you to grow as a company. But as a concept, the concept of using open source as the core quote unquote asset of a company, something that you don't own. It's some, someone else's, it's, you know, it's the, uh, the property of the community. Right. Uh, sh- share with me a bit about the philosophy behind it. Well, you could probably segment that into two different philosophies. One is, we'll, we'll start on the open source side. So outside of Red Hat, the community philosophy. And even there, it's a little difficult to say the community philosophy, because there's so many communities and there's variations on a theme, but to make a really broad brushstroke. Communities are focused around solving a technical challenge. So what I would, I would just call that collaboration around a shared vision. And the open source communities really develop a sense of the importance of the technology that you're building just for the sake of the technology and what's possible with it. And which means it's not a inherently a commercial focus. It's really about building the best technology. And in that context, a really critical part of the whole process is being engaged, being involved. And typically, we would just refer to that as contributing. There's different ways to contribute. You could contribute code as a developer. You could contribute a bug report as a user. You could contribute documentation as a writer. You know, many different ways that you can help a community roll forward. But the whole notion is how do we tackle a really large problem with a group of passionate, motivated people focused on just building the best technology and really contributing and creating this community experience, which enables, because of the open source licensing principles, enables anybody to have access to this technology. So it's really democratizing the process of building it as well as the access to it, which is a pretty substantial concept all by itself. Red Hat has a more commercial focus. Our philosophy is about really working with the upstream community. So the communities have, we use some terminology in this world, in the open source world, uh, the open source community, the collaborators that are building the technology and, and some also users, so users of the technology. There's a notion of upstream or the location where the core contributions and core development is happening. And then some derivatives that can come from the upstream open source software that could be commercially supplied 
products. Those tend to be called downstream. So our focus is on being directly engaged in that upstream community as a way to influence the community, understand the deep details of the technology, really as a prerequisite to delivering this to the enterprise as a, you know, in a certain sense, it's a very sort of standard enterprise software product in terms of capabilities and support and expectations and what, what a customer would expect. So our philosophy is ensuring that we're deeply involved in those open source communities. We are just a part of those communities. Everything that we do in terms of the products that we deliver, all of that code goes into the upstream community first because we believe that it's the community that allows the software to scale and be maintained over the long term. It's not a derivative fork and a company focused on that derivative fork. And so it's really critical to us to continue to push all of our changes into that upstream community uh, to help build the inertial velocity of the community to make sure it's sustainable. And also you could think about our development process is collaborative across the industry. So it allows us to move really rapidly. We're a subset of the overall development community. We're not the entire community, uh, which means you know, we're able to leverage the talent of some of the smartest developers on the planet working on really challenging problems, whether they work at Red Hat or not. And it's just a very different way of looking at how to develop software uh, and then deliver it to, to a customer. How often is it that you will, uh, let's say, provide or contribute something upstream and it will not be adopted? Well, I, I couldn't give you a statistic. Yeah, but um, just, you know, like it happens. It's, well, <laughs> I promise you there are examples. But the way, what we try to do is really work with the community to enable as close to 100% success as possible for that list of features or requirements that are critical to a customer that need to be implemented in, in the community software. And that's not always fast. So sometimes that can be a very time-consuming and arduous process. We generally are successful in, in the outcome, but maybe not in the first try, and maybe not as we initially thought it should be implemented. So again, it could take some time and it, there could be some shifts and changes along the way. And it's really important when you're thinking about making contributions to a community that you think more about the end result than who solved the problem. Like, think more about what problem are you solving than who solved the problem or how it was solved. Because what happens is you get really attached to your idea. Here's the solution. And the community's viewpoint may agree on the problem statement but disagree on the solution. A lot of conversation can happen in that disagreement and an outcome could look, a positive outcome from the point of view of somebody who's trying to influence change uh -huh. could look like a completely different implementation from what you originally started with, maybe even done by somebody else. If you look at it from the point of view of did I impact the change, the answer is yes, that's success. If you look at it from the point of view of did I get my code merged, the answer is no, and you think that's not success. You, you, know, you gotta really think about the whole process. Um, and as a result, why I say we're, we're pretty successful and it's why we spend so much time and so much of our engineering resources directly involved in the community to build the trust and the depth of understanding so that we, when we make suggestions that are architecturally clean, they really fit the, 
the design patterns of, of the software base, you know, it, gives, it just brings this level of credibility, which increases the likelihood that our code changes will be accepted. Now, let me give you a really specific example, which I think helps illustrate part of the challenge. We were working with a customer, and actually it was a, a, select, a group of customers and some partners in a common industry, and they really wanted a feature. They wanted this feature in OpenStack. What they wanted was an API that allowed you to correlate in a virtualized cloud environment, correlate a physical CPU really running on bare metal to the virtual CPU that's inside the virtual machine. Pin those things together. Say physical CPU number one maps to virtual CPU number four, which doesn't matter why they wanted that. The point was that level of digging under the hood doesn't really make sense in a cloud environment. The rationale for why they wanted it was a certain type of application performance acceleration. So we changed the conversation to say, what if you say, give me a high performance virtual machine? Under the hood, we can wire these virtual CPUs to physical CPUs. You don't need to know those details. What you know is you get the same accelerated processing environment that you're after. That was a long conversation. I mean, you know, it took months of back and forth and trying to understand what's the real problem we're solving and then multiple proposals of how it could be solved. Ultimately, we took the feedback from the customer and the, and the partners, influenced the community and got those changes in. And that kind of process is just how we work. It's, and, and it's what is required to be successfully influencing communities. Yeah. So I have um, kind of a bi-directional follow-up question. So I'll start with the one okay. direction and then I'll go to the other. Looking at Red Hat and, and the, the likes of Red Hat, and, and you see that now Microsoft, not now, but recently they acquired uh, GitHub and, and you guys were acquired by IBM. So do you see there is a future for you know, mid-sized companies to continue and, and uh, augment and, and, and flourish in the open source community or eventually you know, giants are giants and they will uh, also bite uh, their stake into the, uh, into the community. It's a really tough question. So I'll, g- I'll give you my perspective, um, certainly not the answer. So I'll start off with saying Red Hat's acquired by IBM, Microsoft acquires GitHub. These are examples illustrating that what I would say open source has won and gone mainstream. When I started, open source was sort of a fringe radical idea, and you had to convince executives at businesses that it was safe, secure, prudent to run their business on open source software. That conversation happens occasionally today, but it's not the norm. And there's over 100 million projects in GitHub. There's over 30 million developers focused on all of that, all those GitHub projects. It's a huge effort uh, across the globe of what open source is today. And in that context, there's just the broad economic world. There's a lot of consolidation and larger companies growing, uh, you know, different ways to compete across different industries. So there's kind of this broad change in how businesses are built, I guess you could say. Open source is, is infused in many of these spaces, whether it's a small startup who's focused on a single technology or a larger company with a whole portfolio of technologies like Red Hat built around around open source. I think the common theme in there is is open source is is a better, cheaper, faster way to build and deliver technology. Acknowledged, understood. The business models around how to build 
a thriving, successful business around open source, there's a lot more question marks and experimentation. And so I think that's maybe at the, at the heart of your question is, how do you take open source and turn that into a successful business independent of your size? And, you know, there's, there's consulting-led businesses that are really focused on the technology and being consultants on that technology. There's open core business models, which sort of blur the lines between what's open and what's proprietary. There's portfolio approaches like, like what we have at Red Hat. There's deliver it as a service, you know, many different models. I think that the concept of open source is here to stay. I think the business models around how do you take open source software and successfully commercialize it will continue to evolve. In part, the cloud itself has changed how users consume software. So making sure that we keep pace with that change is critical to how open source communities will evolve and businesses around them will evolve. So, yeah, I think there's one outcome which looks like massive consolidation and you either get bought or you go away. There's another outcome that looks like sort of continued innovation and business models and proliferation of a variety of sizes of businesses. I believe in that latter model more than total consolidation. I think total consolidation at an industry level is not healthy. And I, I know there's so many clever people that you'll see disruptive business models and, and new approaches that help businesses of all size find a way to be successful. Part of what we try to do at Red Hat is be a platform and onboard a large ecosystem. And many of our ecosystem partners build their software products from open source. So there's a nice symbiotic relationship there where we're supporting one another. So, which is kind of uh, brings me to my, my next question, which is, uh, so how do you anticipate open source evolving or what, what would be the future of open source? Is it the same as today or do you see some fluctuations and, and changes? I think there's a couple of trends in the industry that will impact what open source even means. So today we have a pretty solid understanding of what it is. There's a large number of licenses already. Those licenses try to encapsulate different ways of creating freedom around intellectual property. There's two changes that I think really shift how you think about open source software and software development. Almost all of the existing projects today and licenses, almost, there's a few exceptions, are focused on building software and then delivering it as an artifact or a product. Mm -hmm. So you take it, you give it, you know, I give it to Avishai, you go set it up and run it. When it's turned into a software service, whether it's, you know, SaaS, managed service, pass, whatever, the delivery model is quite different. And what's interesting in that delivery model is the software that's inside the service that you're using is less visible to the user at that point. You're interfacing with some APIs that surface the internals of the service and you're leveraging the operational experience of an operations team that's somebody else's. So for software, for open source software to evolve, I think one important notion is for the software projects, the open source software projects, to think in terms of how do we operationalize this software? What tooling and automation and just user experiences matter when you're running this software in, in general, but more specifically thinking of running it as a service? Even what APIs do you surface when it's running as a service, which might look different from, you, know, you have a database, as a DBA, you can dig inside, you've got a, a million knobs you can turn, 
as a user, maybe you have a fairly simple upload a table, query the table kind of interface. And transitioning to that world where we focus on what the operational experience is, the automation around operating the project as a service, even delivering capabilities through APIs as a service, I think open source software projects need to evolve in that direction. That's one area. Another one, which is harder to picture what the outcomes look like, there's a, a massive explosion of data creation. Analysts will give you different numbers. You know, all the world's data was created in the last X years, half of it was created in the last X years, you know, kind of point being exponential growth and, you know, say roughly doubling over the course of a few years in terms of just data volume. And at the same time, open source projects are really proliferating in the space of managing data, creating insights from data, machine learning, deep learning, all these super exciting topics largely happening in open source communities. The data itself and the associated trained models represent something that looks roughly like source code and a binary artifact. In an open source community context, we understand licensing of source code uh, and the associated binary artifact. What does it mean in a world where data drives the binary artifact and the software used to do the model training is open source, but the data isn't? So I think we'll have some interesting, just, I don't know, like evolution of thinking and, and you know, probably some conflicts of interest in terms of where we have shared pools of data that help advance the state of the art and where data is proprietary. And you know, I think, so there, there's gonna be an interesting intersection between data, the software that's manipulating data and the artifacts associated with that combination of data and software. So two ways that I think the open source worlds need to evolve, operationalizing software and thinking of data as a first class citizen. You've identified, I think, rightfully so, the hybrid as, as the next uh, evolution of our industry. And the fact that data centers are becoming part of, of the cloud or the cloud is, you know, going into the data center and with the edge, it's all like uh, one big mess that we need to, uh, uh, to look after. If you look at it from perspective of companies like, uh, I don't know, HP, VMware, EMC, Dell, um, and the likes, all of them are more or less discussing the same phenomena. All of them have their own philosophies. So are we expecting now to see in the next few years, like a kind of wall gardens, there will be the Reddit philosophy of how to operate this hybrid environment. And there will be the um, VMware philosophy of how to do it. And there will be the Amazon philosophy and, and, and customers will need to, uh, to decide, are there an Android shop or an iOS shop? And, and it will be like the same thing with, uh, with the hybrid cloud. It's a great question. So I, I, I have a couple different thoughts on that one. Uh, one, I don't think it's going to be quite walled garden per vendor. Uh, I think there will be some level of commonality and then some, some walled gardens. The large cloud providers are really building an entire infrastructure and, and looking to service the breadth of the enterprise needs with their infrastructure. Yeah. You can call that a walled garden. I'll explain in a moment how there's still some, I don't know, perforation in those walls or uh, some ways to create commonality. Some of the other vendors are looking to leverage software to build that common platform. And so if you indulge me for a moment on a digression, the last 20 years saw a fundamental shift in how compute was delivered at the hardware level. 
So 20 years ago, the data center was filled with vertically integrated RISC hardware and Unix software coming from Sun and HP and IBM and you know, SGI and all, all the vendors. The combination of the x86 platform and Linux disaggregated those layers and enabled flexibility and choice. It, you know, created thriving ecosystems. It gave choice to the consumer, the enterprise, uh, drove costs out of the system. And ultimately, Linux became this focal point for the industry across many different vendors and customers and industry segments. Everybody has slowly brought their focus to Linux as a core platform in, across the industry, which makes it an extremely valuable and important platform. There's different Linux vendors, so there's some different ways to consume Linux, but at a high level, having all of the industry focus on that common platform creates an amazing power and a level of flexibility and choice that you didn't have when you had fragmented Unix uh, environments. Kubernetes as a platform takes a single Linux server that runs on a single bare metal and stretches it across a cluster of either physical or virtualized hardware, which is the basis of what we use in OpenShift that creates our open hybrid cloud platform. The industry is broadly focusing on Kubernetes in a similar way that we focused uh, and continue to focus on Linux. And so I think that there's a number of industry players who will look at Kubernetes as a way to build this hybrid infrastructure. Much like Linux created choice at the hardware level, Kubernetes creates choice at the cluster level. And so certainly that's what Red Hat's doing. I think you'll see that from other companies. And then the place where it, the, those walled gardens get perforated or, or however you want to look at it, take Red Hat as a, as a concrete example. We have a strong partnership with Microsoft and Microsoft runs a managed service called Azure Red Hat OpenShift. So they run a managed service that's OpenShift. Yeah. AWS, similar scenario. IBM, same scenario. So in that context, even the cloud provider is enabling a kind of continuity yeah. uh, that leads to a hybrid cloud. It's, it's not their core strategy. You know, their, their core strategy is bring the enterprise onto their platform. But, but, do you see, but do you see Google Play the same way or you see Antos as kind of uh, yet another flavor of, uh, if not full OpenShift, but a glimpse into the OpenShift domain? So Red Hat has a strong partnership with Google. We don't have the same managed service that's operated by Google that we do with some of the other cloud providers today. You know, no, no telling what the future holds. We run OpenShift on Google, so we create that choice for the customer. It's a difference of whether does Google do it or not. And then Anthos itself, I think the way I would describe it is it's just an acknowledgement of that hybrid cloud world. And it's Google's way or, or tool for enabling the hybrid cloud, but in a Google-centric way. So it's part of the Google set of services, which is, you know, that's maybe closer to the walled garden description that you described earlier. It's, it's more specific to a Google set of services, but it's using Kubernetes and it's aimed at that same kind of cross infrastructure deployment environment or hybrid cloud environment. Let me pause for a second and, and go back into the uh, personal questions and ask you, you know, 15 years down the road, you're, you, you didn't anticipate, you know, you said <laughs> it yourself that you'll, spe- you'll still be around. What, what drives you? What, what brings you the energy, you know, to, uh, to continue and push and find new topics to be interested in and, uh, you know, and still, you know, do the, uh, the interesting stuff? Yeah. You know, so I started Red Hat about 15 years ago. And at that point in time, it was pretty common to 
take a role for two or three years and then move on to another role, typically at another company. It's a way to gain broader experience, get compensation increases. You know, it's just part of the part of the culture of the tech industry. I absolutely love open source software. I love the process of collaboration. I love the the technology that we're building. And I, I believe that today open source is the innovation engine for the industry at large. Frankly, there's not a ton of companies that have what Red Hat has in terms of the ability to build a massive product portfolio, all from open source software, tapping into all of that innovation, helping push forward the state of the art of the industry in open source communities, and then deliver that as commercially viable products. Like We're in a pretty unique place at Red Hat. And what motivates me is that notion that we're introducing something fundamentally different to the world and enabling a, a level of, of change and capabilities for the world that is just unique. And at a daily level, I have the opportunity to learn because we're just involved in so much and there's so much change. And at a broader level, my sense is the notion of collaboration and the associated trust and transparency that comes along with really um, powerful collaboration is such a fundamentally different way to build and deliver things that it shifts how we work together. And it creates this sort of the way we, we describe it internally is open unlocks the world's potential. Like it's a really massive driver beyond just the creation of software. So I, you know, I feel like I'm part of a broader movement and passionate about what's possible and bringing openness and transparency as it uh, and trust as a set of tools that enable us to do things much broader than we imagine and certainly more than any single person or single business could do. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting, I have to admit. And I didn't imagine, I'd, you know, I figured two years here, three years there, just keep on that path. And here we are. And I, I can imagine, you know, staying with Red Hat throughout my career. It's a pretty, pretty awesome place to be. Good. You know, I was reading, I think that uh, many of the, um, the topics you've mentioned are, uh, I read about them in, in, in the uh, open book that was uh, written by your mm -hmm. uh, founder and uh, CEO. And I was wondering, you mentioned OpenShift. Obviously, you started with the uh, Reddit Linux. What other interesting project you are engaged in today? Well, I'd have to put OpenShift and Kubernetes in that bucket of, of really exciting, interesting things. Yeah, um, it is exciting. And it's because of what I was saying before, where the industry over the last 20 years has brought its focus to Linux, and that's fundamentally changed everything. Mm -hmm. um, Kubernetes is not 25 years old. It's more like five years old. So it's in the early stages of its life cycle. It has all of the kind of hallmarks of that broad industry focus. And as a result, Kubernetes, the core technology, is critical, but there's a whole set of projects that are evolving, emerging, growing around it. Yeah. And that's adding capabilities directly to Kubernetes to improve it from a development velocity point of view with CI pipeline integration and, and standardization to serverless environments to observability and telemetry. I mean, all of these different ways that the platform is evolving to take on this role of a central critical platform, not just for Red Hat's customers and Red Hat's product portfolio, but for the entire industry. Yeah. So I would still put Kubernetes in that. It's super interesting. It's very important and exciting. And some of the satellite projects that are wrapped around Kubernetes. Other key areas would be data processing, machine learning, deep learning. 
And what's especially exciting to me about that is, first of all, we've gone through a few artificial intelligence winters. It's not the first time the world's been excited about what AI could do. What's different today is, um, number one, proliferation of tools that make it easily accessible to data scientists and even developers. Of course, those tools are largely open source tools. uh, So it's very directly related to work we do at Red Hat. Hardware has evolved to support machine learning specific workloads. So, and we have massive amounts of data. So the ability to actually take the data, train a model, deploy a model in a meaningful timeframe is fundamentally different today than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So that's a super interesting and exciting space that is just at its very beginning. You know, we're earliest days of what can AI bring to the world that's not Skynet and, you know, like robots taking over the world, but, you know, what are the positive things that we can do to improve, you know, the kind of enterprise side, business efficiency, engagement with customers to really tapping into understanding and looking at new discoveries that are informed through digestion of massive amounts of information that we've already generated as humans, uh, but it's hard to keep it all in our heads. You know, there's a lot possible uh, with data and AI, which makes it a really exciting space. And then when you bring Kubernetes into the picture, Kubernetes at its core, it's a clustering technology. And when you scale out, you need some type of clustering. And the scaled out data processing services historically have always had their own clusters. Today, those clusters are the same as the application clusters. So bringing application development and data scientists onto the same platform is fundamentally changing the types of insights that we get and can infuse into applications, which I think, again, is why Kubernetes itself is so interesting. And then when you look at just AI and and data, really exciting space. Important in the context of edge computing, where massive amounts of data, moving the data around, getting real-time feedback you know, means you look at how you distribute your compute closer to the data sources. So while edge computing isn't a technology, it's leveraging a bunch of these technologies and deploying them in a location that makes those technologies maximally efficient. And, you know, so a a lot happening, even down at the hardware level, where if you go back five or 10 years, the early days of the cloud, the cloud propagated this myth that all compute cycles are equal. Okay, small, medium, large. You know, more memory, a little less memory, a couple more CPUs, fewer CPUs. But in general, all CPU size cycles are equal. Today, you go to a cloud, and the number of instance types or machine types numbered well over 100, those are all variations on forms of how you assemble hardware to accelerate specific types of workloads. So all the way down at the hardware level, we're seeing rapid innovation in GPUs and TPUs and tensor cores and graph cores and all that, you know, it's just smart NICs and FPGAs and all this stuff happening uh, up and down the stack. And it's open source that helps, that does the hardware enablement. It gives developers access to the features that are expressed in that hardware. And, you know, when you bring it all together, it's just super exciting. There's a lot going on and it's hard to name like the one project, but certainly Kubernetes is critical. AI and, and data, another really important area. And, you know, one of the things that's personally fascinating is quantum computing. Again, I study physics, so I care about quantum mechanics and yeah. I find it just amazing and mysterious and I love the math associated with it. 
the potential of quantum computers is is itself staggering really remarkable uh probably won't just replace classical computers you know it's more of a type of computing that's going to excel at certain types of tasks but as that comes onto the horizon i think that has the potential to have really powerful impacts to you know medical discoveries and material sciences and th- things that will have palpable impact to human life sure um i'd like to end with um with one last question which is kind of uh, you know people that listen to this podcast are ctos cios what will be the uh, two three items that you recommend them to be focused on in the coming uh, few years what what should they draw attention to when they are looking into uh, the future and how the industry evolves well i think there's a couple of things that are that are really important and i actually would say the cloud helps demonstrate these at a, at a high level. So from a business point of view, I think that the two key areas are from a technology perspective are how are you building operational efficiency and developer velocity? On the operational efficiency side, it's creating that common platform called the hybrid cloud uh, so that you have an operations team that can focus on operating common infrastructure with maximal efficiency which includes extreme automation and even infusing AI and, and intelligence into the automation process. So ultimately, we're trying to build autonomous systems, systems that manage themselves. Uh, so you know, what are you doing to improve the automated capabilities to focus on running your infrastructure that's in support of applications? I mean, nobody runs infrastructure just to burn electricity. Developer velocity, increasing your developer velocity has direct correlation to improving revenue growth. We've done some studies with, with analyst partners that show improving your developer velocity index can improve your revenue growth by three to five times. And what's interesting in both of those areas, automation is critical, having a common platform is critical, leveraging intelligence is valuable at the developer side. You're leveraging data and intelligence from your business to better customize a customer's experience or um, you know, create better, a better solution in the end. So I think operational efficiency and developer velocity should be front and center of all of your thinking. A key platform, a hybrid cloud platform enables some of that thinking where data and AI play a key role in your business, I think is really important. And also looking at, a little harder for me to admit because I'm a technologist, but looking at where it's not just a technology problem that you're solving. But when you think about open and transparency and collaboration, it's an organizational structure challenge. How do you introduce a culture and a people process part of your business that supports rapid innovation and experimentation? Because it's through experimentation and small iterative changes that you'll discover the critical new opportunities that are, that are important for your business. And that's not only technology, like you, you have the best technology foundation and a terrible process and no collaborative culture and, and you won't be able to leverage all of that. So I don't know, I think it's kind of a combination of, of, of those things. Great. Chris, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the time. Thanks, Abishai. Yeah, I did too. And I Thanks, want to Abishai. thank you um, and hope seeing you soon face to face, the greater area of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn.